You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book that you can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. And welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because time is a flat circle. My name is Kevin, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Benedict, a hat store mannequin magically imbued with life by a bowler hat. <laughs> Benedict, you big fan of you big fan of protein powder? No, never. No, done. never. Never had it. Not once. Not once. Can't you tell by my <laughs> non. <laughs> Non-chiseled body. physique. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't need it. You get enough protein from all the raw meat you eat. Yeah, that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I know you so well. I no, uh, I think I I did I I briefly did some like diet pills when I was eighteen. I think that mm. was supposed to uh that was supposed to bond the fat so that it did, I don't know something. You were supposed to eat it, <laughs> take the pills after you ate so that you were like. I don't know. It it like you fell for a scam through. is what happened. You fell for it, a scam. It was one of those. Do you have Holland and Barrett here? Is that a UK? No, I have no idea what that is. It's like a health food store. So you get okay. that's why you get your like protein powder and you get no your, no like, here it's all about GNC General okay, Nutrition okay. Company. I think is yeah. what it is. I have no oh no idea. But that's Something the store. Like that. But besides that, everyone buys that shit online these days. They do, yeah. It's like, even me, like, I buy my protein powder online, because, like, GNC, which is where you usually get that kind of stuff, is it's a scam. It's so fucking expensive. Whereas, like, I can go and buy, like, a, you know, five-pound tub of protein powder for, like, 25 bucks online, and it's perfectly fine. Don't but, you, uh, like, you have to do quite a lot, though, right, to use it? Otherwise, you just shit it out. Right, exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. Like, most people, you get more than enough protein. You get way more than you need. It's not a big deal. Like, I see people who, you know, are not my size uh, taking their protein shake every day. And it's like, man, that's not doing you any good. Really, yeah. just have a hamburger. You'll be fine. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I'm, you know, I spend a lot of time in the gym. Uh, have some big, some big muscles. Too. Big, big frame big frame to build on. Big muscles. Uh, and so I do uh, occasionally need to, to supplement to get those gains. Got to get right. those gains. And I've got to say, it? I switched over recently. Uh, I was on uh, vanilla protein powder for a long time. Oh. And I, I switched over to chocolate. Okay. And I'm feeling it, man. I'm feeling it. Yeah. But what I really want, what I can't find anywhere, is my strawberry. Okay. Does it come in flavors like ice fan. cream? Can you get like Rocky Road or like rum and rum You can and get vanilla? cookies and cream, yeah. Oh, shit. oh yeah, I've had okay. cookies and cream before. Mm, okay. Delicious. St- but- Stracciatella protein powder. <laughs> get that full gelato flavor. A little coffee cake flavor. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into the weeds there. Uh, but anyways, Benedict, this is the show where we uh, we read the worst books that we can find from the right yes. wing. Yes. Uh, and review them and, and I'm torture sure we can ourselves. Find worse. I mean, this isn't. I feel great, like I'm, I'm, I'm sure adding this. I feel like the reason why I have to add in, uh, and I'm gonna, probably going to do this from now on, that little explainer about what the show is about in the beginning is because it usually takes us 10 or 15 minutes to actually get to the book review. 
Because <laughs> we spend so much time doing our bullshit here at the we beginning. We don't get we're... to talk very often. Like, yeah, no. We only really talk when we record, like, in person. I'm, I'm not just calling well, I mean, you. We're both busy people. We text just... all the time. Yeah, and we spend, yeah, yeah. you know, a good hour and a half, two hours a week talking when we're doing these recordings. Yeah. So it's, uh, I feel like we get plenty of, this is more than I speak to most of the members of my family. <laughs> well, you know, I won't say anything about that. <laughs> well, wait, we don't, we don't, we, we won't, uh, we won't put that down on a recorded medium where it can no. be used against me in the future. No, indeed. But Benedict, do you have any hot takes for us this week? Yeah, my hot take this, this week is that it is, I am better at telling what season it is by what candle I happen to be burning <laughs> than by actually going outside. <laughs> Transitioned very smoothly into the apple honey butter candle. Ooh, very yeah, nice. To, very to nice. A little D- DW home action for the nice uh, fall the, scent. the current scent of my home, uh, and this is, I find this quite lovely, is the uh, trash bag I've been procrastinating taking out to the trash chute. <laughs> that's, that's the current smell. All those nice eggshells in there. Is it, is it just me? I, I swear I never had to take the trash out so regularly as I did, like, as I do now. Well, yeah, because so we spend so York- much more time at home. No, no, but, like, even just, like, moving into this apartment, I guess maybe I just never did it at home. <laughs> but, like... <laughs> Maybe I was just lazy. Or I just feel like the trash was further. I never, I didn't have to interact with the trash as frequently. So it didn't bother me as much. Like it would just be like tucked away in a corner somewhere. Whereas here, like I live in a tiny apartment. There's no escaping the trash can. There's nowhere to hide it. That's the problem. Exactly, nowhere to hide exactly. it. No. Exactly. And my, I mean, my trash can is right in my kitchen near where, uh, you know, my desk is where I, where I record all the shows from. I'm probably about five feet from the trash can. And yeah. I'm not lying about the, the scent. Uh, that's lingering. Yeah, a nice little scented candle, Kevin. Uh, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'll think about that. Probably. Now not. I know not what your Christmas candle, present right. is. Ooh, that'd be lovely. That'll be lovely. What do you have? Oh, a hot man. take? Could you, could you put some enthusiasm, some fucking enthusiasm into that ass? Sorry, please? I was, I was making, I was <laughs> not nodding at, nodding at my wife so that she knew to write down to buy you a candle. <laughs> she gets it. Anyway, do okay. you have a hot take? Yes, I do. Uh, mine this week, uh, because as we know, I put more effort into these than you do. You didn't uh, write it down. I actually no, I, wrote I, I never down write advance. it in our notes because I want to surprise you with it. All right. I want your I authentic reaction. Yeah. Mine is that blaming the system is a cop-out. All right. I think... Is this a I reaction people... to our conversation before we started talking? <laughs> no. <laughs> before this, we started this, recording? No, no. I put the, I, this has been sitting on a sticky note next to my computer for a week. Uh, and, uh, yeah, blaming the, I hear so many people so often say the system, the system, the system. And yes, there are plenty of problems with our systems, but the reason I have a problem with saying the system is the problem is that takes away the responsibility when you're having the discussion to say what the problems with the system are Mm -hmm. so that we know what we need to fix. Right. And I just, it's a little nitpicky thing for me when people, especially as a lawyer, people often throw at me stuff about the system. When they're talking about the law, like you did in our pre-show conversation today. (laughs) And oftentimes it's people not understanding that system. Yeah, I do. I do think the the optics are important, though, as Mm -hmm. well. Um, And we can get it. You know, we we talked about this already. We don't have to get into it again. But then I, I, I would push back on you very slightly. I know this is the jokey hot take section, but you know what? Let's have this conversation. There are some things that like. How do you fix the system when the system is designed not to be fixed, right? So I'm, I'm thinking about stuff like, you know, gerrymandering and like who, who gets to draw the boundaries for things 
and like oh the people that won the election get to draw the boundaries of like whether they will be elected again and it's really hard to fix without like a wave election in in a democratic system like how do you answer things like that right so but here, here's here's the reason why i still say blaming the system is a cop-out what are you going to do about it Kevin, I'm all for burning everything down and starting again, <laughs> but that is not a demo. That's not a democratic outlook, is it? You're all in with our friend Rousseau and Voltaire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that surely. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Two two no, people but... who hated each other, by the way. So we'll <laughs> get to point, that. But the point is, right? When you say, "Well, you know, we got to say the system," I agree. There's something wrong with the system, but we need to define what is wrong with the system, mm -hmm. and we need to say what we need to do to fix or change the system. And you can't do that if you just keep saying the system, the system, the system, yeah. right? Because, no, like true. you just that said, in order to change the system of gerrymandering, you have to have a wave election. That's the only way to fix it. You mm -hmm. have to have control, or. Yeah. Anarchy and burn the shit down. One of those two. Well, and the yeah, second but, one's not going to fucking happen. Yeah, but I'm saying, how, how do you have a wave election when 40% of the population, you know, in a in a polarized population is what I'm saying. Like, how, how do you fix the system from within the system? Honestly, and I think this is an, uh, an uncomfortable thing to say. Sometimes you just have to fucking wait for all the old people to die. <laughs> okay. Like, you gotta, wait book, for the, you gotta wait for the conservatives to die off, man. Yeah, I just don't, well, okay. It TV sucks, TV. but beyond burning the shit down, I don't know another way. I don't know another way. Mm. Okay, well. <sighs> I mean, What's on your bookshelf this week? Benedict, <laughs> are, you, are you a soft yes on white genocide? Is that? I am <laughs> absolutely not going to comment on any of this. <laughs> I'll take that as a soft yes. Benedict, <laughs> let's move on. What's on your bookshelf this week? Uh, it is about the New Deal. It's called Fear Itself by Ira Katznelson. And it's about the limitations of the New Deal for communities of color in particular and how, you know, the alliance with Southern Democrats that FDR had to make made for some not great provisions that were designed to not benefit certain communities um and actually ended up benefiting them a certain amount anyway because you do get a certain amount of natural lift from just helping people that are less well off but it's it's a really good book on the failures of the new deal something of which i am a big proponent the new deal as as i'm sure you know and FDR's, no fdr's presidency in general minus the internment camps um, and the alliances with Southern Democrats that did yeah. racist shit. There's always but, a couple things you want to take you want to take back. Yeah, from that just, sort of you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one's no one's perfect. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really it's a good critical look at the the New Deal and and some of its failures, but also some of its resounding successes. Fun. Yeah. What well, about you? You got something? Uh, yes. This week I have something which is much more. Uh, light and delightful than what uh, you suggested. My suggestion for this week on the bookshelf is the new Farside cartoons put okay. out by Gary Larson. Did you have the Farside reading up? Did they have those in the, in the uh, newspaper comic section? I had the rapper, the Farside, spelled <laughs> P-H-A-R-C-Y-D-E. <laughs> we all did, Benedict. The yeah. Farside was a gift to all of us. No, the Farside is a uh, single panel comic strip uh, put out by Gary Larson, and it was, I think it ran for like 25, 30 years or something, I think. Okay. Um, 
And then he just sort of wanted to retire. And they're all like really clever, great. I, I just love it. And I had a, a buckle, a couple of the like collected editions of The Far Side when I was a kid. Um, but he has recently come out of retirement and started doing new e-comics. Um, I guess just because like he got, and I like read the story he wrote on his website about why he did it. And he uh, got like a, a drawing tablet from someone uh, as a gift and, like, he picked it up and started to do, like, their yearly Christmas card, which he still does as a comic, um, and found that he really enjoyed it and really loved it. And they're, they're super clever. You can go uh, to thefarside.com and see his new stuff. He's putting out new stuff all the time. And they're really delightful and fun and clever and great. And everyone, if you see The Far Side, you're like, oh, yeah, I know that. I've seen that comic style before. I, I know it immediately. It's wonderful. I will look at it. I'm Which I would it. like you to go to thefarside.com right now, Benedict. I am looking at it. I'm, I'm looking at it. There's a there's a one about monkeys singing peelings, nothing more than peelings, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's just yep. delightful. Well, that's the old stuff. That's the old stuff. But there's new stuff, too, and it's great. It's just yeah. classic bits of humor. It's just good stuff. No, I'm just going to be looking I at this hear... for the rest of the episode. <laughs> Well, anyways, before we get into the book review for this week, just the usual housekeeping, uh, nothing much going on this week. I mean, uh, you know, rate and review us on iTunes. It always helps bump us up there, help more people find the show. Uh, If you haven't already, follow us on all the socials, on uh, Facebook and Twitter, and uh, I think those are the only ones. Maybe I'll make a LinkedIn for the show. Maybe that'd be good. Uh, (laughs) You can follow us at NYGBCPod on Facebook and Twitter. But Benedict, it's time now to return to our book review of The Right Side of History by Ben Shapiro, White Bread's Boring Cousin. (laughs) Benedict, what did we read this week? Well, this week we read chapter six, Killing Purpose, Killing Capacity, which is the Blinklist version of whatever the chapter before was meant to be about. I don't know if you're familiar with Blinklist. No, when I was in uh, uh, in high school, we had, uh, what was the other one? What's the, uh, what's the, oh, Cliff Notes. Cliff Notes, that was the one. That oh yeah, the one so we had. had Spark Notes when I was in school. Blinklist is a new app that's like, we will distill anything down into like 15 minutes are reading, they sponsoring the show a, this week? Is that why you're bringing are, it up? They are not, but it's just it's such a garbage concept and I hate it so much. Just read the fucking book. Um, it's like, oh, we've distilled the work of Kant into five minutes for you, which is literally what Shapiro does here. So, uh, I feel like you've spent a lot of time uh, hate reading Blinklist. It's uh, <laughs> what it seems like to yeah. me. Yeah, just take all the nuance out of things and be like, this will make you sound smart at parties, which is what it's for. <laughs> yeah. It's, yep. it's it's for it's for dicks that want to like say enough about Kant to sound smart without ever having a real conversation. I'm sorry, again, you're gonna have to clarify, are you talking about this book or blinklist? You have to be you have oh, to both. be very clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both, okay. Both, both. <laughs> well, then like you said, this week we are reading chapter six, Killing Purpose, Killing Capacity. Do you have an alternate chapter title for us? Uh, yes, I do. It is, this chapter isn't what I say it's about, because none of that comes up at all in anywhere in the chapter. There's nothing about killing purpose or killing capacity, really. It's literally just And this just is how another... I know you forgot to write an alternate chapter yeah. title and You're just right. came up with one last minute. <laughs> literally, I, I, I as I asked it. you the question. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Panics and forgot. You're right. Well done. Do you have one? Do you want to try? You, yes, have, you always have yes. like three. I'll take because I prepare for the show. Yes, I, uh, the I have show. two. I read the chapter and everything. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. I have two. This. Ben, how long have we been doing this? Are we on what, like our third year of doing this? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like by now you might remember to do the basic things. But mm-hmm. you would uh, think. this my, this week I have uh, my alternate chapter titles. First off, Killing Intellectualism, Killing Credulity. Uh, very simple. <laughs> and then my second one, Ben lists the new atheists he can remember. <laughs> Just yeah, throws like... them in randomly in this in this chapter as an insult, I think. Uh, just out of nowhere for no I'm reason. Surpri- yeah, I'm surprised he doesn't hasn't spent longer on like the modern atheist movement. But I guess they largely align with his right wing thinking now. So I mean, yeah, there, look anyway. at the shit Dawkins is saying these days. I think yeah. him and Ben can have a lovely tea party. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think I think he might get into some of that later in this book too. Uh, there's some. There's some moments when I think he might uh, he might start talking about them a little bit. Let's see if Hitchens he... appears in the index. Oh, you should do that. But anyways, this chapter uh, starts off with him talking about the great debate in our country that breaks mm-hmm. out almost every year, he says, uh, regarding the separation of church and state. And I Which just Jefferson, that... by the way, wanted. <laughs> and I would also note that Ben lost that debate back in the 50s. So oh, yeah. it's not much of a debate so much as his side screaming and us ignoring. Mm. And sadly yeah, also, losing a lot more than we would like to. <laughs> yeah, and he again, he uses that disingenuous language because he's, he's talking about maybe a court case about removing a Ten Commandments monument from a public space. What he means is a publicly funded space. Not a, it's not just like a field, right? right. It's it's right. it's like outside a courthouse or. Well, and then he says after that line, as another example of that debate, forcing a religious baker to create a custom cake for a same-sex wedding, which not the I same will thing. remind everyone. I think we talked about this on one of the previous uh, book reviews. Maybe it was the Faith of Donald Trump one, but it was not at all a fucking custom cake that they were asking for. The guy told them he wouldn't make them a cake without even finding out what cake they wanted. So. Yeah. Fuck you and your bullshit straw manning of that entire uh, yeah. situation. Yeah, also not not the same thing as a separation of church and state, really, right? I mean, no, that's, no, not that's... at all. It's a douchebag not wanting to make a fucking cake. Yeah, it's not like having a religious thing in a pub in like a courthouse. It's not like the laws. Not of the at land all. Are... Yeah, exactly. Not anyway, at all. Dumb shit. So, but carry on. Yes, yes. So he he goes on here, and so the first one of the one of the first couple paragraphs uh, of this chapter just irked me so badly for fucking structure reasons. And usually this is a thing that annoys you far more than me. <laughs> but this, I couldn't, I couldn't ignore how badly written this was. So this is his paragraph where he's, ta- you know, he's talking about how he's argued that the founding philosophy was based on the combination of reason and religious teachings, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and he says religious morality, which I will, again, I always want to argue, there is no such thing as religious morality. Religion has taken morality from society and uh, condensed it into their into their teachings. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as though it comes from religion. People weren't saying it was okay to murder before the Ten Commandments said not to. Okay, yeah. so I'll just read this fucking paragraph that bothered me so fucking much. Where it goes and it's, it starts halfway through a paragraph, but you'll see what I'm getting at. Quote. We built a civilization that was practical and purposeful, religious and rational, virtuous and ambitious. Individual capacity and communal capacity had been brought into harmony, colon. Citizens had committed to Judeo-Christian values and individual rights, working to bolster one another. Individual purpose and communal purpose had been aligned, colon. Individuals were set free to cultivate virtue, and communities were built to set the framework for that pursuit of happiness. Fuck you, that is so goddamn annoying to fucking read. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I would. I, 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 I think I would go with a semicolon, if not an M dash there. But yeah. Fuck him, fuck him in the M dash. Fuck him <laughs> in the M dash too. Because he uses the fucking M dash all the goddamn time. And that annoys the shit out of me too. Because that's just yeah. shitty, boring, lazy writing. People love I mean, like, I'm looking now, I'm looking at this page right here. I'm looking at this page. I see one, two, three. Oh, and then an, uh, that's an error. It should have been an M dash, but it ended up just being a regular dash. Uh, there are four just on the second page of this chapter. Four M dashes. Yeah, fuck true. you. I think you're gonna. You might get more hate mail over this M dash hatred than you'll get about anything else we say in this, this this review. People love the M dash. No, well, it's, I'm, I'm it's, a... it's it's worth it when you're doing dialogue to set yeah. off dialogue and emphasize it. Not in a fucking book like this. Yeah, I'm a semicolon man myself. But I'm a go. semicolon man. Let me tell you, I'm a whole colon, baby. <laughs> no, you just complained about the colon. You, you I complained about his that. fucking use. Yeah. He used it. He didn't use it for fucking lists. God damn it! That's just annoying. Anyways, so what he's going to start arguing here in this chapter is that this so-called enlightenment that people say was so Kevin, great and so wonderful really you know, wasn't. You know what this this next paragraph is? What it is, is it? a nice little homage to something from your favorite book. What's his name? The Russia hoax dude. Yes, Greg Jarrett. What? Greg Jarrett. It's a, it's a little homage to Jarrett's snowball of inferences. Ooh. That's what this next paragraph is. Ooh. Yeah. Please, please continue. Tell me. So Tell me how. He, we, we get from uh, advocates of the so-called enlightenment suggest that the philosophy of the modern West sprang from rejection of religion and embrace of reason. And somehow we get from that in kind of a circular way back to the Enlightenment shed the vestigial organs of religion and Greek teleology and took civilization to new uncharted heights. But then like a couple of pages later, he's going to be like, well, actually, none of that's true. So like he, he says, he goes through <laughs> Well, I think he says that things. immediately after that paragraph, the, bar the very last that's line true. on the, this the, page the next is, is, yeah, you're right. unfortunately, these claims are manifestly false. So yeah. So, what, it's, it's kind of a snowball of inferences in a different way and that he puts words in other people's mouths rather than using other people using something to infer something well but yeah he, but that's this whole book and this whole chapter right so this chapter what we're going to go through right he's going to talk yeah. about the enlightenment he's going to go through what he's done in a lot of other chapters which is listing out different philosophers and doing a you know a decent B paper explaining, you know, in basically a paragraph or two, what those philosophers said about some very, you know, mm. uh, specific topics. Specifically, he wants to talk about moral, uh, objective morality a lot. That's what he wants to focus on in this chapter. Mm. Um, and then he's going to go on and say, ah, they were all fucking wrong and they destroyed Western civilization. Is basically how this chapter rolls out. Yeah. But yeah, we get, we get from like, uh, what does he say? He said, the very term enlightenment suggests a pre-enlightenment era in which religion inhibited human development rather than fostering it. Uh, okay, sure. And then he says, uh, they deride the Greek search for telos as misguided. Like, I think that is a huge leap about what <laughs> enlightenment thinkers think. I think that there are aspects that people take, but I, I think we're, we're really inferring things about what enlightenment scholars and thinkers think of, of well, right. the right, and, and it goes back to his strategy of pulling out specific individuals and what they said, and oftentimes portraying that out of context or distorting it in some way, and pretending yeah. as though, if it's convenient, 
convenient to him, that represents the entirety of that era or that region, whatever the case may be. I mean, we, when we talk about the Greeks, or whenever Ben talks about the Greeks, what he's really talking about is Plato. That's the only one he wants to focus on, yeah, because he Aris- wants to talk Aris- about Aris- teleology. Occasionally. Aris- yeah. occasionally. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's a bit later in the chapter that we'll get to when he's talking about, like, the pursuit of pleasure, basically, uh, that arose out of the Enlightenment and claiming it sprung forth kind of unbidden from the enlightenment without acknowledging that hedonism is Dude, a thing the that greeks had that shit too yeah, exactly so hedonism did the romans. Is a whole philosophy yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so i mean like, we'll get to that but... yeah d- d- do you even epicurious bro yeah, exactly. like yeah <laughs> fuck off man fuck off yeah yep. uh so so right and what he starts off with after that whole thing talking about how the enlightenment people uh, what everyone says about the Enlightenment is false. By the way, uh, big fan, big fan of the uh, of the sentence. As we've seen, history is necessary. Yes, <laughs> yes. And what I wrote in my book above that is, nuh uh, because history is linear, bro. Like no shit. <laughs> Everything that happens later comes after the things that happened before it, right? Yeah, exactly. And he says exactly. that the, what he it's, it's what the he same says thing after as the, the. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Well, what he says after that is, quote, if it weren't. Enlightenment could have sprung up anywhere, anytime. Perhaps it should have arisen earlier in societies without the barriers of Greek telos and Judeo-Christian religion. It didn't. No, Which, because again, it's specifically is another a reaction to, to those things. <laughs> right. But again, it's a nod to him not understanding that other things happened in other cultures. And, like, fucking Chinese philosophy has a lot of shit to say about morality that doesn't have anything to do with Greek telos or the Judeo-Christian religion. Right, mm-hmm. the fucking these these areas all got to their you know different or in a lot of cases similar ideas through different paths. Like you don't need these this whole argument he has right that we wouldn't have gotten where we were without and forget the Greek Tello stuff. What he really wants to talk about is the Judeo Christian part. That's the mm-hmm. part he emphasizes throughout this chapter over and over and over again and throws out the the Greek uh, part because I think he thinks it makes it sound more intellectual to keep bringing up the Greeks. But what he's really about, we know, is the Judeo-Christian part of that equation. And he gives some nods in this chapter, I think, to him wanting a theocracy. We've been, you know, as we've been reading this book, I've been sort of trying to figure out what his stance is on theocracy. And I think we get some, some supporting arguments here that he is pro-theocracy in this chapter. Yeah, although not a biblical literalist, it seems. Um, we'll get because he that, complimented but... Spinoza? <laughs> no, I mean, it, or, it's from yeah. the bit... It's from the bit, and I can't believe I'm about to say these words, where he compares, where he compares Bill Maher to Voltaire, or rather Voltaire. You know, I gotta wonder if someday there's ever like a, an Alcoholics Anonymous for for ex right wing fundamentalists or or uh, major figures in right wing thought who are just there telling their stories, right, about how bad it was, about their darkest days, man. You know, first thing, first thing I did was just say that facts don't care about your feelings. Next thing you know, telling women that their pussies should all be dry. You know, this shit just rolls on. It doesn't stop. And then next thing, I'm writing these fucking books, man. I got a book deal, three a year. I got to write these motherfuckers. I just put them out and put them out and put them out. I can't stop, man. I can't stop. Someday. Before I knew I'll- it, I was comparing Bill Maher to Voltaire. <laughs> Uh, someday yeah. we're going to see that footage. Uh, somebody, uh, somebody's going to break the anonymous rule uh, of those meetings. But <laughs> so, what you're saying, 
No. Uh, is it? I, I lost track with the book. No, sorry. My, my my point being, he he does uh, later on say that there are ridiculous statements from the Bible. He does seem to acknowledge that that like not all of the Bible is necessarily line by line true. So well, I don't know if he acknowledges that or if he writes that certain philosophers said that. I'm not uh, sure but, uh, because we'll, we we'll had hints we'll earlier in this book that he is a biblical literalist, right? Remember when we were talking about the flood? I brought that up. How he seems to imply that it was an actual thing that happened. Yeah. So I'm not sure where I, coming out of this chapter, I don't think we have a lot of evidence to counter him as it's a biblical like, literalist. It's in like six pages. It's in the Voltaire, but we'll get to it. But yeah, this this whole bit, this whole bit is just like, hey, if history hadn't happened, history might have been different. Like that that's yes. all that this bit is. It's like hey yes, it might have. <laughs> the Enlightenment arose as a result of the Judeo Christian civilization. Oh, by the way, Christian civilization, largely, in Western Europe that hated the Judaic civilization. Yeah, and it is it is weirdly strange for him to keep emphasizing Judeo Christian and I know what he means, right? His belief is that Christianity is built on Judaism. Um yeah. but to keep emphasizing it when we're talking about the Enlightenment period when we know that most people and most of these philosophers he brings up were deeply anti-Semitic. Deeply. Yeah. I mean, at the end of this chapter, we're going to get Dostoevsky, who had some very problematic portrayals of Jews in his books. Also, man. complete misreading of Dostoevsky. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It's wonderful. It's really wonderful. So he moves on and says, quote, What if the ideas of Judeo-Christianity and Greece weren't foundational? What if they were more like a scaffolding to be removed from the structure as Western thought solidified? What if we could pick and choose our favorite ideas from the Enlightenment canon and junk all the rest? As we'll see, we tried it, it failed. But I love that so much because picking and choosing his favorite ideas from the Enlightenment and junking the rest is what he fucking does in this chapter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also what he does with like Greek philosophy, for example. Yes. Yes. So before we get to this first subsection, there's just one little paragraph left before we get to the first subsection of this chapter. But in it, basically, he's saying that the Enlightenment was when the purposeful destruction of Judeo-Christian values and Greek teleology, which he'll keep bringing up, just to sound pretentious, I think, mm. uh, began. And that that's, was, that's what they were doing in the Enlightenment period. They were chipping away at the foundations of this period, which, again, ironic that he would not want to live in that fucking period. But B... To say that the downfall of Western civilization began in the Enlightenment is so strange Very weird. when it is undeniable that things only got fucking better from the Enlightenment onward. Largely for, for most people. Everyone. For everyone. For most people, well, yeah. Again, I'll go back to my, the period with flush toilets is much better than the period without flush toilets. Yeah, I think that there probably is some uh, a little bit of white supremacy that evolves out of the enlightenment probably yeah sure that maybe sure. isn't isn't good for a lot of not people not that it wasn't already colonial... there i would say no but I, I think there's a lot of intellectualization of colonial the colonial mindset probably that that gets justified because of enlightenment thought um you know the the kipling model of enlightening the the rest of the world with the white man's burden that kind of thing uh, that probably arises sure. from the Enlightenment, which isn't great for a lot of the world, I would say. But j I, I understand your point. And that the, the, it got worse when the Enlightenment started. He's not making the same point that I might make there, <laughs> right? It, sure. he, he has a very sure. different idea of what that means. 
Sure. So we get to this first subsection of the chapter, which is titled, From Virtue to Moral Relativism. And I was surprised he didn't actually define moral relativism in this chapter. I sort of thought he would, but he doesn't. He just sort of skips over No, he loves a buzzword, though. He, like, that, that's something that... Moral relativism is a, a right-wing gripe, right? That's like mm-hmm. a... It's a whole thing. And I, which I get. Like, you... I to, to some extent, I feel like you... People should be judged to a, a, a minimum standard of behavior and morals but right but it's also it, a constant right-wing straw man right where they pretend exactly, that exactly. moral relativism is oh you can't judge anyone because everyone's uh, there's no no objective morality you can't judge anyone for anything <laughs> it's that bullshit straw man they go on right yeah exactly so he exactly. starts off this subsection saying quote The original drive to discard God in Western thought grew from three intertwined forces. First, the drive against religion sprang from the dissolution of Catholic dominance, which I love, again, because his his audience loves the fact that Catholics aren't in charge anymore. They are largely non-Catholic people who like Ben. Yeah. His second, his second point, atheism and agnosticism saw a dramatic upswing among intellectuals thanks to the rise in religious fundamentalism. Cool. Okay. Why? Why might that be? tenuous link there? I would say tenuous but what, link. Why might that be? Maybe, but like the Catholics and the Protestants are killing each other again. Hey, maybe none of this is real. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a lot of people said, "Hey, maybe this is bullshit." If they're fighting over this nonsense. Yeah, over whether this is actually the blood of Jesus or just some wine. We had a fucking war. Maybe this isn't the best idea. But I'm not so sure that the rise in atheism and agnosticism can realistically be ascribed oh. to religious fundamentalism uh, in the light of everything else that was going on with the there Enlightenment. There is no demonstrated link there at all. No, no. At all. Also, the, the drive against religion sprang from the dissolution of Catholic dominance. You mean when the other major world religion arose? Like, what are you talking about, the drive <laughs> against... Like, oh yeah, Protestantism arose, and that was when... The drive against religion began. Like, what? What the fuck are you talking about? That is bizarre. And also, it's, well, it's the same thing as what he said in his second point, right? He says that it was because of the violence between Catholics and uh, and you know, the various different other uh, sects that split off when when Luther did his his you know uh, hot shit. Uh, but you know, the last thing that he spat says spat those ninety five theses. On spat the those theses, bruh. <laughs> hot fire, hot that that Luther mixtape, man. Oh. <laughs> That shit is fire. You know, it's true, because uh, it, th- th- there was a beat when he hammered that shit to the door of the cathedral. And 99 Theses and a bitch ain't one. Uh, <laughs> but the last one that he brings up... 95 Theses, but I appear to have lost four of them. <laughs> <laughs> but the last one, the last point uh, he has here for his three intertwined forces is the fragmentation of control by the Catholic Church, which led to more room to breathe for dissenters. He Isn't continues, that just the first point again? <laughs> Yeah, that that was what I was going to say, but he continues, (laughs) The Peace of Westphalia was explicitly designed to promote more religious freedom for minority religions, and that also allowed new agnostic philosophies to flourish. So that's one of the points where I wrote in the margins here, it sort of implies that he's pro-theocracy, because if he's for these Judeo-Christian values and saying these are bad things that happen that cause the crumbling of this society that he loves— it seems to imply he would be for the theocracy that existed before the Peace of Westphalia. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly I hadn't thought of it that Am way. Am I wrong there? No, no, that's, yeah, that's not great. But it's, it, yeah, also, yeah, his third point is just a repetition of his first and second points, right? It's right, just they're, they're like, all the same. <laughs> they're ca- all just ca- the fucking same. Catholic homogeneity ended, and therefore 
atheism. Like, okay. I mean, it also sounds like Ben wants the Catholic Church to rule the world. Weird, right? He's like, oh, there was a there was a pope, and that was good because everyone did the, what the pope said, and then people stopped doing what the pope said, and then that was bad. It's like, ah, uh, but it's that <laughs> new socialist pope he hates. He loved the Nazi pope, I'm sure. Doesn't like the socialist pope so much. <sighs> Yeah. So we move on to our first philosopher of the chapter, Machiavelli again, even though we already again. talked about him before. Or and we've just, already talked about every philosopher he brings up in this chapter. I think there's a couple he brings up that we didn't hear from before. I don't think Nietzsche. he talked about Kant Nietzsche's before. the only one. Yeah, no, he didn't he talk did about Nietzsche. He definitely didn't bring up Nietzsche before. Um, yeah, Nietzsche's new. But like you said, right, where he's just repeating shit from earlier chapters, he's just slightly looking at what they said differently from a new light for this chapter. It's not even all that different from what he said before, but basically he's saying that Machiavelli was the first one to break away from objective morality and religion, guiding morality, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then moves on very quickly to Hobbes and <laughs> says about Hobbes, Hobbes applied the standard of rigorous logic to religious revelation itself and found revelation wanting quote from Hobbes, to say God hath spoken to him in a dream is no more than to say that he dreamed God spake to him, which is not a force to win belief from any man that knows dreams are for the most part natural and may proceed from former thoughts. Hobbes wrote, if one prophet deceive another, what certainty is there of knowing the will of God by any way than that of reason? And man, if that isn't just such a bad quote for him to choose... <laughs> Because it's so obviously true. Yeah. I, mean, I, wrote, I mean, like, for, for the for the benefit of Ben's audience, let me just read this in a version translated uh, that they might understand, which is, <clears throat> quote, What if them guys was lying? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> that's that's it. Like, that's, if you distill down what Hobbes is saying, it's like, those guys could have just been bullshitting. Like, we don't fucking know. Yeah, it's an Occam's Razor situation. Like, is it more likely that this person was the son of God and gives all objective and, morality? And, you know, I've read a lot of stuff that was full of shit. I don't think it was true. Yeah. And a lot of that stuff's really, you know, them like the Greeks, they wrote that um, Iliad, that stuff. I don't think that's true. But, like, they made a movie with Leo DiCaprio, and I thought that was good. But um, I don't think it's true. Leonardo DiCaprio was not in I feel like Troy. he was. No, that is was Bra one of them. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt and uh, I feel like Leo was one of them. No, maybe Leo's not in that movie. Was he not in that movie? I feel like he was in that movie. No, it was Brad Pitt and there's a bunch Brad of Pitt and the the Legolas guy, right? Orlando Bloom. Yeah, Orlando Bloom. Yeah, Blue, Orlando no, Bloom. Yeah, there was a bunch of people in that movie. How the fuck do I remember all of them? <laughs> Helen Hunt was she in that movie? How the fuck no do I know? Idea. I have never. Yeah, you know who you know who wrote that movie? I do not. Stephen King. No way. Fun fact. That Fun is fact. Not true. Stephen King. Yeah, he wrote the Iliad. You didn't know this? <laughs> he did not write the Iliad. <laughs> How would you know? <laughs> well, I mean, it was authorless. To be fair. Uh, <laughs> to, to, to be perfectly fair, it was probably written by some blind poet that never wrote anything down, and then eventually someone wrote something down in much the same way that the Bible was written, and we don't know who wrote that. So right, and he get and again later in this chapter, he's going to get into some of the the philosophers who criticized right the the uh, provenance of the Bible and how we know these things are written, and like they're all just making great points, and he breezes right the fuck past them. Yeah, he's like, this is a point someone made that I am going to quote and be like, this is ridiculous, and then ignore. Like the the next person he brings up, the next philosopher where we get to is fucking Spinoza. Yeah. And Spinoza was a brilliant philosopher who had some of the earliest critiques of, like, the truth of the Bible and the fact that, like, this shit isn't true. 
like he's talking about the miracles in, in the in the Bible and uh, uh, the fact he, Spinoza was one of the earliest uh, you know people to, to publicly say that the Torah hadn't been written uh, by Moses um, mm-hmm. and you know that there was no proof of the Bible's divinity and all this stuff and it's like yeah he was just fucking right there's no proof of that and this is you know like we, this show isn't about atheism we're both atheists but like. One of the arguments you always get into, or at least I always get into with people who want to cram down religion on me is always like, okay, you can believe it, but you're not allowed to claim that you know it's true. Yeah. You're not allowed to claim that you know it's true because there's just so many reasons not to and no reasons to believe that it's true. Right? The the We know that the earliest gospel we have from the New Testament is like 60, 70 years after uh, the Jesus character supposedly died. Mm-hmm. So the whole timelines don't wrap up man like none of this shit makes sense so believe it if you want but a don't try and force your shit on me b don't claim you have proof that it's true like fucking ken ham and all the fucking frightening fundamentalists try to with their bullshit non-science there's the whole i mean we've had these arguments a lot um from back in the day when we were Mm -hmm. more atheistically active i would say in the community before it went a little, a little right wingy. Um, Before the association we were, uh, we were with, went, yeah. uh, a little more right wingy. Yeah, a, l- a little, little right wingy. Um, but I, I, I like the fact that he tells on himself here when of like how he's talking. Because he, he acknowledges that Spinoza is brilliant. Um, he does say he does. brilliant, brilliant laps. Spinoza was brilliant. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I like that he tells on himself when it comes to the Judeo-Christian society because he he, he says all this stuff about the the Bible's non-divinity and the Torah and everything, and then he says, quoting Ben here, Spinoza believed that the Bible had been written for the foolish and carried forward by them, but he was also politically astute enough not to disparage the New Testament as he did the Old Testament. <laughs> so I mean, reading between between the lines there. It yeah. was fine to criticize Judaism, but not mm-hmm. Christianity at the time. So right. what? how do we feel then about the Judeo-Christian basis of society? Not, not great, so great, I would say. Yeah, not great. Especially given that Spinoza was Jewish. So uh, well, extra problems for him also, there. Also, another thing. He was an Orthodox Jew. D- does the Jew- does Judaism, and I-, I genuinely don't know this, he claims he was excommunicated by whom? I Does Judaism know. have an association that can excommunicate you? Is there a way the... to be excommunicated in Judaism? I thought that was just it was a Christian the top, thing. It was the top guy. The top yeah. guy did it. Big guy. The big guy. The big man. <laughs> you know, it was the big but man. I, I thought that was only because you can't be excommunicated in Islam. You can't. You know, there's no. There's no hierarchy to. You know, you're excommunicated by the Pope in Christianity and Catholicism. Right. But like, I think, I and I, I don't know, but I think that Orthodox Judaism might have a little more hierarchy to it. Um, and I think specifically, Spinoza was alive like in the 1600s in the Netherlands. There might have been a more formalized organization around that time. Um, so I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that, but I mean, he, he was excommunicated, so I don't know. I just, I don't know. Yeah, I just don't know by It's interesting. By don't have any information on that for you. Don't know. It was the... He re- okay, I just googled it, just so you know. Uh, 1656, he was received the harshest writ of excommunication ever issued by the Amsterdam Portuguese Jewish Congregation. The ban was final, and Spinoza never reconciled with his community. So there you go. I did not know. Well, that. there we go. There we go. Uh, but this is also the first point in the chapter where he uh, spits fire at one of the new atheists, where he yeah. says, "Quote." 
As proof of the Bible's non-divinity, Spinoza wrote in terms that would make Richard Dawkins proud. <laughs> Religion is manifested not in charity, but in spreading contention among men and in fostering the, bitter, the bitterest hatred under the false guise of zeal in God's cause and a burning enthusiasm. So that's the first time he's going to reference one of the new atheists when he throws mm. out Dawkins. Uh, again, a guy who is like more on Ben's side than ours these days with regards yeah. to a lot of things. But uh, interesting, interesting, and we're gonna we're gonna get more of that throughout also, this chapter. Great quote and true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so moving on from Spinoza, right? He doesn't have very much to to argue with Spinoza. I don't know why he really brought Spinoza up, except to say that there were philosophers who were moving away from religion. Yeah. Okay. Really, Point there were some really smart people who thought this was bullshit. Uh... <laughs> right. And you know, Spinoza, and he's he's talking about the ethics theories that these people had and a little bit of that. And so, right, Spinoza arguing for a God that, uh, um, you know, Spinoza's God is a whole philosophical concept and, uh, you know, a God that isn't active in the universe and doesn't, basically doesn't care. Um, and so from that, he... I he always finds ways to, ways to be like, this person was for small government. Yeah, yeah, he always does. He always yeah. does. All the people he likes, he hates Hobbes. So he's like, Hobbes wanted big government, but Spinoza wanted small government. <laughs> he keeps he keeps arguing that all these philosophers were libertarians. He, yeah, he says specifically that a bunch of them were libertarians. Basically. It's great. Uh, so moving on, next thing he says, quote, The final step away from Judeo-Christian ethical monotheism and Greek teleology and towards outright atheism came courtesy of the jolly British empiricist David Hume. Like Hobbes and Spinoza before him, Hume discounted. The, I love describing him as jolly. I just do love that because, like, <laughs> it's very dismissive. Look, it's quite funny. I think that means fat back in their day. Does that? <laughs> is, I feel like anyone who was really old, jolly. who was being described yeah. in modern day, if they were like chunky or you know a little yeah. little chubby, they're described as jolly. Because like you look at the pictures yeah, of Hume, and yeah, he's a he's a. I mean, especially because most of those portraits were done when he was older. He's a little overweight guy, so I feel like that's where they get the jolly part from. Maybe just is my Hume impression. the one that's always in a turban, or is that someone else? There's a yeah. There's a couple of pictures where he was in a turban. I don't I don't know what the turban was about. Uh, he was British. Maybe it had something to do with the uh, imperialism. Maybe Probably. I have no idea. Sounds right. Uh, probably we know how you people do over there. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. can, but <laughs> I cut off from my quote, but I'll keep reading. Uh, like Hobbes and Spinoza before him, Hume discounted the possibility of miracles. He said that the laws of nature speak to us more frequently than any human testimony, and therefore the evidence for miracles was annihilated. He argued that polytheism was as rational as monotheism, or he even argued Great that. Great argument. Uh, which, it, it, uh, we went in it in the first chapter where we really got into the religion stuff, man, and I gotta say, polytheism, in fact, more rational <laughs> than monotheism. Yeah, because the monotheist has never been able to deal with the problem of evil, man. If you got an all-powerful God, you can't explain that away except by saying that your God fucking hates you. That's the only way. Yeah, or there's another. <laughs> there's a fallen angel, but not a divine one. Like, what yeah. are the angels if not divine? Like, it, and if your God is all-powerful, why can't he do anything about it? Yeah, doesn't make sense. Yeah, uh, but it does he, not make any sense. But that's fine. The last also, thing he... I, I, sorry, just quickly, I like the I like the fact that he's like the final step away from Judeo-Christian ethical monotheism and Greek teleology is Hume, and then he's like, <laughs> and then Voltaire, like, okay, so we weren't done then. It's not yeah. the final. And step. And then he's gonna go on to Nietzsche and other yeah. people, and it's like, fuck you, this old final step when you're gonna keep <laughs> talking about other philosophers who came after fucking Hume. Fuck you. Uh, so, the, but the last thing he says about Hume is to mischaracterize the is ought 
problem that Hume had, right? He calls it the is-ought distinction, where he says, just because the natural world is a certain way doesn't mean we ought to do a certain thing. And it's not, uh, that's not a principle that Hume laid down. It's a problem that Hume laid down, right? Mm. It's, it's very fucking different uh, than the way that Ben is trying to portray it here in this book, where he's trying to portray it as though Hume is saying, well, we can't figure anything out, can't do nothing. It's a problem, and it's one that I don't think Hume ever found a way to figure out. <laughs> but, like, it's not, uh, it's not the way Ben is portraying it in this book. No, not at all. Not so, at all. the next subsection of this chapter is entitled Building on Reason Alone. And here he's going to go through a bunch of philosophers who, in his mind, have tried to come up with different systems for morality outside of religion and the sort of objective morality Ben thinks flows from the Judeo-Christian and Greek teleology that mm. he will repeat over and over and over again. I got to wonder at some point if he had a keyboard shortcut to insert uh, <laughs> Judeo-Christian and Greek teleology. I think he did at some point. Probably. That's the only way you can get through By the way, I chapter. love Voltaire, and that that's this bit is about Voltaire. So let's, let's I know, which Voltaire. is why I knew you'd be delighted. <laughs> so he started off, right? He starts off here arguing that uh, all these Enlightenment thinkers were trying to construct systems, uh, new moral systems, constructed from scratch, is what they were trying to do. And he argues that most of them were trying to construct systems that would maximize human happiness, as opposed to religion which maximizes human suffering. Uh, so <laughs> the first one we do get here, yes, is Voltaire. And uh, Ben, I think I'm going to let you handle there, Voltaire. By the way, there's a... how much you love him. Yeah, no, I will. Oh, I just want to say there's there's almost a nice bit of writing from, from Shapiro here. Almost. Oh, what where, part? What part? Where, so in, it's the paragraph before where you say, now in reality, most, most Enlightenment thinkers still uh, operated on them off the moral assumptions of Judeo-Christian values as well as Aristotelian teleology. Okay, fine. Their intellectual engines were running on the fumes from a gas tank they had already purposefully emptied. That's almost <laughs> that a, nice, is a, good, a nice metaphor. That is a good metaphor. That's a good uh, metaphor. I got to say, yeah, I got to give them credit was, for that one. Only a matter of times until those fumes ran out. For the argument he's making, that's a nice metaphor. I like that. But the remnant vapors were responsible for some of humanity's most fascinating and complex attempts at creating a God-free <laughs> objective morality. You kind of lose me a little there. I will give you the previous two sentences, but the rest of it is, is yeah. So anyway, we get on to Voltaire, as you say. Uh, he was a deist, although mm, by in the broadest possible sense of the word. And then he was like, yeah, there was probably something, but not a God. He's also the person that said if God did not exist, then it would be necessary to invent him as a joke. And then Ben took it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't actually reference that in the book. I was hoping he would, but whatever. I think he, <laughs> he didn't. We have in a previous chapter where maybe, he did, had a maybe. similar Voltaire quote uh, that Ben took seriously. That was really like a sarcastic thing that Voltaire. Yeah, had I feel like but we had that. Everything that Voltaire says pretty much is a joke. Like almost all the writing we have is some form of satire or like you know, intellectual. I gotta like, say, we are missing in our modern society the great art of satire in the written mm. form. We just don't have it anymore. Like, we, there are great comedians who are wonderful with satire, who do great work. But we don't have that sort of satire you got from people like Voltaire or uh, who's a, the fucking American author who wrote... Um, Twain. Uh, Huck Finn. Why am I blanking? Mark Twain. Mark Twain, right? For like Mark Twain or Voltaire. You don't get that anymore. I really do Jonathan Swift, it. no melancholy object to those. Right. About eating, eat, suggesting about that we eating eat all the, the children. babies. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. just don't no, get that great uh, stuff anymore, man. I think 
satire's hard now because satire's really hard <laughs> you look back you look back at veep which is i think one of the best political satires that there has ever been and you're like well this happened in real life yesterday so <laughs> i don't know that, that is we true can, man that we can write things that are funnier than real life at the moment i think trump is everyone said trump was good for comedy i think trump has ruined political comedy i just don't find it funny yep. anymore because pe- people are to... either trying too hard to do the impression or that it's just like yeah. it's such obvious stuff that there's no yeah. there's no intellect or imagination behind it it's just making fun of the thing the dumbass things that have actually happened and it's also a situation where like the horror is so intense at the the things that are going on it's hard to laugh at it's like Patton oswalt's uh sodomy demons joke right where he's <laughs> talking about how um you know, people are telling comedians, man, you're going to miss George Bush, man. You're going to miss him so much. And he's like, you know, what if I had wrote, what if there were, were sodomy demons who existed and would just randomly swoop down and sodomize people? And I had written 10 great minutes about the sodomy demons. I think I still wouldn't mind if they were gone. I think I'll be fine. I'll be fine without the sodomy demons. Also, could still do the jokes. And everyone would be like, yes, ha remember when that joke. happened? That I was terrible. I remember the sodomy demons. You remember the sodomy demons? Yeah, <laughs> man. They got me over on East 25th Street. Fuck. Flew right out of the sky. Uh, but yeah, right. It's, it's that same problem. Anyways, continuing on. We keep trying to yeah. avoid the book. We do this every time we do a <laughs> review. But this is this is the chapter where he this is the paragraph where he compares him to Bill Maher. So he says he says he said <laughs> yes. some nasty things. We get the about second James, new atheist. Yeah, he did. So, like an 18th century Bill Maher, Voltaire delighted in ridiculing the most facially ridiculous statements of the Bible and dis- declaring the Bible's morality abhorrent on its face. Yeah, if you mm-hmm. find inconsistencies in what is supposed to be an infallible book, you should point those out and make fun of them and therefore say that all morality based on that is open to criticism. That is a perfectly legitimate stance. Right, and I would say the morality of the Bible is abhorrent. It's a book that gives instructions on how to keep your slaves. It's a book that tells, uh, you know, and fucking read Timothy, a book that says that women shouldn't be allowed to fucking preach or teach, right? We know it, and the problem is, and this goes back to my argument from earlier, that religion does not create morality. It takes morality from the society around it. But the problem is that it then cements that into whatever book or teachings or scripture that it has, and then those stay captured through time and don't change. And eventually, they have to find ways to say, ah, I mean, those words say exactly that, but they don't mean exactly that. We don't, we don't pretend that doesn't happen anymore. We don't, <laughs> we don't follow those rules anymore. And it's not because we're wrong and we've been proven wrong. It's because you're wrong about how you read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and people like Voltaire are they're just the ones who read it and go, fuck you guys that's bullshit yeah, this is and and there's he he actually picks such a good bit of candide <laughs> yeah because he's like oh voltaire wrote off teleology and i'm just gonna read the whole bit because it's really good he says so pangloss is a character in in candide which is a satire on largely religion but also philosophy and he said pangloss taught metaphysico teleologico cosmo nikon <laughs> Cosmology, I can't read it. Ology, anyway, whatever. He he could prove to wonderful, which by the way sounds like something that Ben would say about like a left wing degree. Yeah, yeah. So you would think this underwater basket weaving. 
Yeah, exactly. He could prove to wonderful effect that there was no effect without cause. It is demonstrable, he would say, that things cannot be other than as they are. For since everything is made to serve an end, which is teleology's point, as an aside, everything is necessarily for the best of ends. Observe how noses were formed to support spectacles. Therefore, we have spectacles. <laughs> Legs are clearly devised for the wearing of breeches. Therefore, we wear breeches. Those who have argued that all is well have been talking nonsense. They should have said all is for the best, which is a really funny deconstruction of what teleology is <laughs> and saying that all things are and made also, to serve a good the existence so, of that paragraph proves to me that ray comfort never read voltaire right <laughs> have you ever seen the ray comfort banana bit no i don't think i have oh my god i, I don't know if you even know who ray comfort is ray comfort Not is really. a uh, australian or new zealand uh fundamentalist pastor who made it big in the u.s pushing uh i think he's involved with the ark park with ken ham um, okay. And, you know, biblical literalism, the, the young earth creationism and all that stuff. And he did a bit with uh, Kurt Cameron. Oh, <laughs> like Kurt okay. Cameron had some kind of, I don't know, it was like a talk show or maybe it was a YouTube show. And he went on and he was talking about the banana. He's like, look how the banana is perfectly, perfectly suited for, the, for oh, your hands. I have seen that. It's got yeah, a handle. For, yeah, it's got yeah, a handle yeah, for opening. That. And it put, you know, it's got, got ridges for holding. And it's like all that ridiculous shit. It's like, okay, man, this is, A, you're opening the banana from the wrong end. And a monkey yeah. could have showed you that. But like, yeah. just great, man. It's just great shit. But that but, that's a really funny deconstruction of teleology. And and like and he goes, Oh noses obviously weren't made for glasses. Like, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> you're, you're right, Ben. And the the point is that teleology, Aristotelian and Platonic teleology are not a perfect world like it's not a perfect worldview, and we should be allowed to point out the inconsistencies. That's the whole right. point here. We move on and he's gonna start talking about Voltaire's idea of purpose and morality. And he says, quote like Francis Bacon, one of his intellectual heroes, he found it in the betterment of the human condition materially. And this led him toward a hedonistic, materialist morality as well. And this is what Ben is going to be railing on throughout the rest of this chapter. Is He doesn't say it in as many words throughout the rest of the chapter, but that's what he's against, is his view of the morality that the rest of us live under is a hedonistic, materialist morality where we're trying to make the human condition better? How dare we think that's yeah. morality? <laughs> that's morally object morally correct yeah the, the other thing is i didn't i i guess i skimmed over this paragraph but he refers to this as hedonistic and then says that like bacon and voltaire invented it but you know that's a greek word there's a reason yeah, know, it's a greek right? word hedonistic <laughs> hedonism give you know as we were talking about earlier democritus epicurus all of these really famous philosophers who yeah. also subscribe to this view of the world yeah, and this is also where he calls Voltaire a libertarian. Yeah, bizarre. Utterly, utterly bizarre. Like, Voltaire just hated everyone. He was a cantankerous old bastard, but it, it, a libertarian is probably a bit strong. Yeah, well, you know how the, the it, there's this thing, and it exists not just in philosophy things, but I would say that the place where I notice it the most is in, for example, country music, mm. uh, where people try and claim that anything that's actually good is country, like fucking uh, Leonard Skinner or yeah. Willie Nelson, no. neither of whom are fucking country music. Leonard Skinner is a, a southern rock country. band. Fuck you. Willie Nelson, listen to, an, to Georgia On My Mind enough times, you'll realize he's a fucking jazz musician. That man has a mind for music, and you don't find that in fucking country music. I, I love it when people realize Willie Nelson is like a massive lefty, and then they're <laughs> oh, like, yeah, oh, yeah. no. 
And also, like Voltaire, a weird old dude. <laughs> yeah, very, like cantankerous old bastard. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a, a good description of Willie Nelson too. <laughs> but this is where we get to the bit where he brings up Rousseau, which I know that For you loved. A line. I texted Kevin when I read this, and I was, I Kevin said it's the most British sentence he's ever read. But I, oh, yeah. when when we got to this oh, bit, oh no, of, no, allow me to read your text on air ahead. for everyone ahead, to enjoy. What you texted me earlier today was, quote. I'm gonna do you. I'm gonna do you the the honor of saying quote. Okay. There is a line in this chapter that I nearly choked on my tea. It's such a logical leap. <laughs> I stand by that. I stand by it. And when he, it's when he says, without any introduction of Rousseau, when Voltaire's freedom, version of freedom was mi- mixed with the passion of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 1712 to 1778, the result was the guillotine. <laughs> Which. Okay, first of all, the French Revolution was well after Rousseau was alive, and Voltaire. They both died before the French Revolution, which was in 1789. So it's a a bit of a struggle. They both died in 1778, which is a full 11 years before the French Revolution. Well, I think he's arguing that the ideas they laid down. the ideas, but you Mm -hmm. know what I mean. Like, he's implying that they caused the French Revolution, which... First of all, these two hated each other. They were not <laughs> friends. <laughs> and there, and there was no overlap with their ideas. And also, there's just no explanation. Literally, he doesn't introduce Rousseau at all here. And he's just like, oh, yeah, he was a passionate dude. And that led to the guillotine. <laughs> yeah, that's what Rousseau is known for. It's just the passion part. That's the only thing Rousseau is known for. <laughs> famously, famously. But and, and this is another point where I wrote, I tried to, you know, I'm trying to pick up these little bits about Ben himself. I wrote... Well, is he pro monarchy? Is that is that what he's getting at here? Because like we can agree there were there were issues with the French Revolution. There's a little of uh, overzealousness going on there. But uh, <laughs> Benedict is firmly pro guillotine at this point. <laughs> Structure is a problem, you know, the system, man. But I always have never understood, and this is a thing that has cropped up, I think, more recently in the last ten years or so, and maybe I'm just noticing it more conservatives criticizing the french revolution i've never gotten that before yeah, and maybe it's, I i've mean, seen it maybe around American lately conservatives but i mean the french revolution is where we get the origin of, of left and right. right wing right that's i mean the the concept of left and right wing comes arises out of the french revolution of the the reactionaries sat to the king's right and the the revolutionaries sat to the king's left right that's, that's where the concept comes from so obviously true conservative right-wingers would and you know english conservatives hated the french revolution burke being a famous example but i think the the pro-democracy conservatives stuck to the line that the french revolution was largely a good thing in america for a while and i don't know whether that has to do with the french helping the u.s in its own revolution probably does right and, and i think that the line that i always thought growing up was that you know the french revolution being you know growing up conservative was that the french revolution throwing off a king starting a democracy good thing because this is the united states we're pro-democracy conservatives yeah that's great stuff not true but anymore by the way not so much true anymore and i have like i said i've noticed criticism of the french revolution from a lot more conservatives and i think it's a lot more of these farther right-wing conservatives that i i sort of pay attention to uh mm. you know people who throw it out like as a, a random criticism to hit somebody with right people like it, alex it, jones and yeah. and, and shit like that 
I think it gets floated a lot now. As I think it's because they hate France now so much. Maybe, but also I genuinely <laughs> think it's a <laughs> it's a criticism of the left, and it gets thrown out as like groupthink criticism a lot. In, in that way of like people getting led along and swept away by groupthink and and there's a lot of stuff around that i think and people find it for some reason it always gets tied back to just the french revolution because people have a very basic understanding of world history and are like there's no other comparable time which is ridiculous true but the next philosopher we get after that that brief foray that one line foray into rousseau uh is emmanuel kant is the next one he's going to bring up. And remember, we already got that the end of uh, of uh, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition was way back in the 1600s, and now we're on to Kant, who was born in 1724. <laughs> yep, lived till 1804. There's a lot to go. Let's yep. keep going. So we're continuing on. So mm-hmm. his criticism of Kant basically centers on the categorical imperative, Uh, And basically Ben's just trying to knock down all these secular moral systems that people were trying to come up with for a long time. Uh, Kant's, uh, you know, categorical imperative said you can't lie ever, 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 as we all know from watching The Good Place. Uh, I think, (laughs) honestly, I think The Good Place, while it was The Good Place is a better education in philosophy than this. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And like The Good Place is like glossing over shit so much. It's just like giving this basic stuff. But it yeah. is, again, such a better overview of philosophy than this book. Uh, but sure. he you know, says the secular mind loves Kant and it's so great, but the categorical imperative is so hard to live with. And would it be wrong to lie if you were hiding a Jew bet- beneath a, na- a door, a-, a floor when a Nazi is at the door? Uh, and which obviously like, the, the answer is no. And, and the reason why the answer is no or, or yes, that it is wrong to lie when you're doing that is because Kant wasn't correct about everything. And we don't think that all these philosophers were correct about yeah. everything. That's, That's why we figure out, hey, these guys had interesting things to say and some good bits. Maybe we consider those and maybe we put them into uh, into some thought into them and, and consider them and spend yeah. some time refining those ideas, That's which thing. people have done and he yeah. doesn't fucking recognize. Well, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't reckon with that at all i think that's that's the thing i meant to say earlier and then i got swept away by making fun of his stance on voltaire but he uh he doesn't recognize the evolution of thought beyond a certain time period and it's that same thing we talked about with conservatives they they like freeze time at their like ideal situation and they're like oh it was fine that ideas evolved to well <laughs> for ben it's like 1537 um yeah. but they're like okay nothing By beyond way, 1537 here horrible time to be jewish yeah not great actually um, any time has of, been a horrible time, time to be jewish yeah, most of time um yeah but they, they freeze time and then they're like i nothing beyond here counts like the evolution before this is all good evolution and refinement of thought but everything after that is just trying to destroy what i think is the perfect level of thought right so he doesn't reckon with evolution of thought and that people can be wrong and like yeah kant had some good ideas he had some bad ideas probably more more wrong than right on a lot of things um right but there's just no reckoning with relativism i guess like relative how relatively correct people can be and that some ideas can be better than others and just because someone has one idea it doesn't mean all their ideas are good there's just no there's no approach of that well and it's ironic given ben's and i don't he doesn't recognize this but there isn't a relativism implied in his judeo-christian greek teleology concept right and that he's combining three different ideas 
and he's weighing them against each other. And he's saying yeah. that these aren't all, all these systems, right? The only one he would uh, say is is perfect is the Judeo uh, portion of that whole concept. But he's recognizing that there are others that have their own merits. There's a relativism going on there, which he yeah. just doesn't recognize he's doing implicitly. Yeah, and I, I but the next philosopher it, we I get mean, to. It must be deliberate, but I, oh, I yeah. just don't understand how you can think in that way. But the next philosopher we get to in this slapdash run-through philosophy is Jeremy Bentham, uh, sure. who was trying to construct a different moral system, which you may be aware is utilitarianism. Uh, yep. Bentham came up with utilitarianism. And utilitarianism, in my experience, is likely the, usually the shit that conservatives want to talk about. Yeah, it's very weird. Because they think it sounds mathematical to them or like a science. I don't know why you, conservatives like utilitarianism. But uh, he's like, no, fuck it. No utilitarianism. He barely touches on it. He does not spend much time talking about it at all. It just moves right past. <laughs> yeah. I, and I don't know a huge amount about utilitarianism, so I'm kind of glad that he moved right past. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my strongest point. But so he, basically there's, there's one more paragraph before the end of this subsection, and I'll just read this little bit right here. Quote, Voltaire, Kant, Bentham, all assumed that reason could construct morality from scratch, but their moralities did not coincide. Practically speaking, their morality lifted elements, even if unconsciously, from the Judeo-Christian tradition and Greek telos they suggested had exploded. Again, it all applies to Ben's shit. To, and again, I reject the, that they took anything from religion that didn't already exist outside of religion. But the moral tradition that Ben is promoting, do, the ones he's promoting do not coincide with each other. The Greek mm. teleology, the Jewish tradition, the Christian tradition all have different moral codes. Yeah, that, and Judaism, Judaism and Christianity obviously overlap more than the, the Greek tradition does. But Right. Right, yeah. but what he's doing is exactly what everyone does and what he doesn't recognize that the moral systems that come down from those ideas that come from Voltaire or Kant or Bentham or whatever the case may be, taking the parts that work and leaving out the ones that don't, which exactly. is exactly what he does exactly. most explicitly with the Greeks. Yeah, and and, and nobody's like a Voltairian, right? That You know, no. in the same way that you're like a Christian. <laughs> nobody's like, Voltaire was perfect and I will take all his ideas and reject the ideas of everyone else. Is the point like nobody does that? No serious thinker would do that. I mean, I guess you get some like empiricists who think that Hume was mostly right, but even then, you're not a Humean. You're an empiricist. <laughs> you take the you take the 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 ideas that you agree the with. The vast and... body of work that came after Hume and exactly. refining his work and adding exactly. more things onto it. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Which you could argue so, is what Christianity did to Judaism. If you don't yes. believe in the in the divine parts of those books. Yep. So we get to the next subsection, which is entitled The Death of Capacity. And you might notice, right, this is basically one of his concepts in his fourfold framework bullshit that he came up with out of his ass. Uh, and he writes in here, quote, By throwing God out of the kingdom of man, the Enlightenment also reduced man to a creature of flesh and blood, with no transcendent reason to guide the way. Which is why nothing has ever gotten better since the, uh, since the Enlightenment, obviously. Again, as Never. I mentioned before. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing's science. gotten better at all. We no haven't science. had good ideas. We haven't had science. We haven't had medicine. Nothing good has happened since then. And this little like subsection he, here, it's, it's... he boils down Machiavellian bacon to recognizing the power of passion. Did you just say Machiavellian bacon? Yeah. Because Machiavellian bacon sounds delicious. It does. It's it? bacon that will also brutally oppress you. <laughs> it'll make you. It, it, it'll be your friend and your enemy. 
It's really sly. It's really sly bacon. (laughs) You you will fear and love that bacon, my man. Uh, But yeah, yeah, he boils all this shit down. And there's a little bit of recap here in this time, right, where he's going back through all those people he brought up before. It's a, uh, it's and a this chapter is where we do within get a, a tiny chapter bit within a chapter. This is, this is the right. Blinkist version. Of, this is of the inception stuff. of chapters. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we do get a tiny bit more about Rousseau here, where he's talking about Hume and Rousseau, mm. uh, and how uh, uh, Hume accepted, or uh, Rousseau, rather, accepted Hume's essential argument and then ex- uh, elevated the passions, all this. It doesn't really matter to what we're getting at. What we get on to next, which is what I really wanted to bring up, is when he starts shitting on Charles Darwin, which I love because this is, again, a window into Ben's person and what he thinks. And this is what I'm really interested in in this book, other than, you know, because I don't think the the average conservative knows any of the stuff he's put in this book or follows any of these ideas. They just think, you know, I'm a Christian. I do what my pastor says. Mm. Uh, And so I think it's more interesting in this sense when he's doing all this philosophy nonsense to look at what he thinks out of it. And so he says, quote, This move away from reason and towards passion, the rejection of Judeo-Christian values and Greek teleology, again, he must have a copy, copy and paste for that, may have been popular among philosophers, but it remained a rather fringy perspective. All that changed, however, with the rise of Darwinism. Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species, 1859, provided the first scientific grounding to the notion of a world without God and a world beyond the mind of man. I like how he says says the rise of Darwinism rather than Mm -hmm. the rise of Darwin's observations about how the world works. Like, it's not (laughs) Darwinism. Or he could have just said the rise of science. Yeah. Because that's what that is, right? It's not a belief system. Like, Darwin observed the world and then wrote about it. That's what happened. But again, that's one of the things that makes me think, further convinces me, that Ben is a biblical literalist and a a anti-evolutionist, I guess. Those aren't fucking things. That's not how those words work, but that's how they would characterize themselves. Because when you use words like Darwinism, you're ascribing to it the sort of belief structure that you have with religion. Mm. While, on the other hand, Darwinism, as he calls it, is just basic science. And it was yeah. the first evolutionary science that we had. And we know Darwin was wrong about a lot of things, but he also got a lot of it right. He laid the basic framework for what we now know as the way life developed on this planet. Yeah. Not that long ago, also. You forget that. that this was like the late 1800s. 1859, man. Yeah. That is so recent. Yeah. The, the, the thing is, I have some sympathy with him here because he's not necessarily wrong about how people reacted to Darwin's findings in some sections. Yeah. Eugenics kind no, of it was rose out of Darwin's stuff. Eugenics kind of rose out of Darwin's discoveries though. Right. People were like, how can we use this to suppress the people we hate? That's a thing that came about because of Darwinism. Social Darwinism was a whole thing amongst like a great deal of, of Victorian era literature from like Brazil and um called of course uh, you go to brazil uh Don, not don cashmore memorish posthumous uh posthumous memories of brash kubesh um charles dickens as well like it's all that's all based on like social darwinism survival of the fittest so he's not wrong that people took it that way but to say that it's like that's the fundamental underpinnings of darwinism like science like observable facts <laughs> And, t- and turning like it into a belief system is, is a stretch. 
Right, because it's not a belief system. It's just true, right? And I understand what you're saying about how people took Darwinism wrong, but that's just what people do with new discoveries that aren't fully understood, right? When you think back to, like, what we had before we really had science, like, when when we look at, like, medicine, when they had bleeding, right? Which the reason why bleeding was probably popular was it did help with some things, and so people thought, hey, this must help with everything. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right, people take things and extend it in a way that is appropriate, inappropriate, because they're not using science properly, or they're yeah, not they doing the amount it. of study that would really be necessary to actually do what they're talking about, or completely misunderstanding what the fuck they heard. But he continues on. This is another bit, right, about about Darwinism, uh, where he gives me another another hint. Uh, where he says, "Quote." Darwinism was seen by the intelligentsia of the time as a final permission to break with the ways of the ancients. Finally, at long last, the superstitions of religion could be put aside. Finally, at long last, the legacy of the ancient Greeks could be escaped. And again, it's just continuing on with that theme uh, of Darwinism is a break away from all these things that Ben finds good and Ben finds right. And so it emphasizes, I think, that Ben thinks that believing in evolution, which again is not a belief, it's a fact— is wrong. And I think that's I, I think that's pretty close. I don't want to say it's a hundred percent conclusory <laughs> evidence of what Ben thinks, but that's pretty damn close. Yeah. I it's hard, isn't it? I I, I just I I just hate all these arguments so much. <laughs> well and he, so he does give us so another new atheist drop. He does give us another new atheist drop here where he says quote In fact, the excitement of Darwinism can still be felt today in the literature of atheists like Daniel Dennett, who writes, Darwin's idea is a universal solvent, capable of cutting right to the heart of everything in sight. And Daniel Dennett, thank God, is one of the new atheists, not even part of like the real new atheists, but he was part of the, you know, modern atheist movement who are not shitbags, which is great. Yeah. It's great that we have one who who hasn't turned into a right wing asshole. He's just a psychologist. Huh? He's he's just a psychologist. Like he is. Yeah, a, and a great he writer. He's a brilliant brains. fucking writer. Yeah, yeah. He's a super super intelligent guy. He's so great. Yeah. Uh, but he finishes off this subsection saying, "Quote: As the scientific world celebrated its newfound elation over Judeo-Christian values and Greek telos, two fig again that fucking phrase, two figures emerged to warn the West of what was to come. One was a Russian novelist. The other, a German philosopher." <laughs> and this is where we get into the final two philosophers of the chapter, mm. Dostoevsky and Nietzsche. And yes, I'm going to call him Nietzsche because I'm not going to try and pronounce it right every goddamn time. Fuck you. Sure, let's do it. So this final subsection is entitled The Warning. And he starts off telling us about Fyodor Dostoevsky, who was worried about mankind unbound from moral obligation. And according to him, According to Ben, he saw in this atheistic world, quote, the face of the Marquis de Sade, the famed French sadist, rapist, and pedophile who embraced passion, <laughs> discounted human responsibility, and saw in his own pleasure the highest good. So this is what Dostoevsky, according I, to Ben, saw in this atheistic world. I'm not sure 18, 19, mid-19th century Russia can really be called an atheistic world. Yeah, no, also, that's part of not, what I was going to bring up. Yeah. Really? No, not, yeah, yeah, fucking Dostoevsky died in 1881. I don't yeah. think that in the late 1800s you really had what any of us would describe as an atheistic world. Maybe you had people being less fundamentalist about it. <laughs> it's about what you could get to. Yeah. Go ahead. But according, according to Ben, 
he saw the atheistic man and the, the uh, materialist as the far more of a threat than the religious man. And this is where he gets into, right, the brothers Karamazov and notes from the underground uh, and does his little, little mischaracterization of Dostoevsky's writing. Yeah, I, I'm just not, it's, it's been a while since I read Dostoevsky, but I think he's pretty much critical of everything, right? There's this whole bit where <laughs> Jesus is, is, is in an inquisition with the Grand Inquisitor. That's like the most famous passage from the Grand, from the Brothers Karazimov, right? Am I, am I misremembering that? Yeah, which I think, if you read it, would be a pretty searing indictment of Catholicism by implication. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's Catholicism, it's it's various social social practices, probably also a little of atheism as well, but it's definitely not as much as, as Ben's implying here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just ridiculous nonsense. I, I don't I don't know why he put this in. Basically, he just needed some people near the end of this time period, near the end of the 1800s who are sort of on Ben's side or that he can yeah. portray as being on his side. And I don't, yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure why he needed that other than maybe he wanted to write this subtitle, the warning, and he really wanted to fill that out. I, I don't even know. But I mean, but the, the thing is like it, having Dostoevsky on your side, I guess is good for prestige points if it's true, but also, yeah, I just, I don't really get the, like why you include, He's not a philosopher. He's a novelist, nope. first of all. Yeah. And he's an existential But Benedict, aren't, all, aren't all authors themes. philosophists in some sense? Philosophists? Is that what I said? Philosophists, yep. Yep, yep, you did say that, yep. Petition to change yeah, philosopher I mean, not, to philosophist from here on out? I, I, I don't think, I don't think, like, what's his name? The James Pattinson? I don't think he counts as a philosopher. Is that James Patterson? Patterson? <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's a philosopher. Yes. yes. How um, dare you? Some of my favorite books are Patterson books. <laughs> all right. Well, that's nice. Um, all right. Let's, let's write out Nietzsche. The final subsection of this chapter, which is entitled The Triumph of the Will. And yes, this is where we get Nietzsche, uh, who I should, I mean, I shouldn't have to point out was the Nazi's favorite philosopher. And like, Okay, it's not Nietzsche's fault that the uh, some Nazis liked him a lot, right? We talked about yeah. this, and I think we talked about this in, like, the, the movie review that we did at some point. Yeah. Like, okay, he died long before the Nazis. Some of them really liked him, but, like, okay, yeah, they just took his shit and twisted it like the social Darwinists did with Darwin's stuff. Yeah. Uh, but, but, okay, again, this is just... Him trying to say Nietzsche was the the answer. He was what they they it all turned into at the end. When you say that there's no objective morality, you end up with nihilism because that's the straw man the right always goes to. If there is no objective morality, there is no morality and nothing matters. That's yes. this argument you hear from them all the time. Yeah, and it it, it it's dumb, first of all, and also there's nothing wrong with nihilism because sometimes nothing does matter. <laughs> <laughs> also, the only real nihilists are Amy Mann, Peter Stormer, and Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Those are the only real nihilists I know. Flea is a, a chaotic neutral nihilist, definitely. <laughs> Isn't he the one that cut off the toe? I don't remember. No, it was Amy uh, Mann. They cut off Amy Mann's toe. That's right. That's right. Oh, God. Oh. Anyways, there's no point to this Nietzsche section of this no. chapter. There's really no fucking point. Uh, he puts in a block quote from Thus Spake Zarathustra, uh, says that he ad you know, Nietzsche advocated the destruction of Judeo-Christian values, blah, 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 blah. 
the new morality of Nietzsche was strength and courage and honesty and struggle. Who cares? I will read the final paragraph, as I always do. That's too, I'm surprised he doesn't what? bring up the Nazis in relation to Nietzsche, actually. He doesn't I really. am, too. We're going to get some of that stuff in a later chapter. He gets into World War II, um, I and I think he's probably going to pull uh, he's gonna pull Dinesh D'Souza on us, uh, is what I suspect when we get to that Nazi stuff. So we'll see how that fun, goes. Fun. But so the final paragraph reads, Yes. The final paragraph reads as follows, quote, What Nietzsche observed and what he lauded had been underway for generations. Philosophy spent two centuries killing Judeo-Christian values and Greek teleology. Fuck, I hope he finishes using that phrase soon. Or at least discarding them in favor of brave new utopias filled with perfectible human beings or crystal palaces ruled by men of reason or worlds of determinism filled with avoidance of pain and maximization of pleasure. Terrible fucking run-on sentence you wrote there, Ben. Either man would rule supreme or he would destroy all in his path. Which would it be? The world would soon find out the answer to that question. End of chapter six of The Right Side of History. Benedict! How you feeling? How you feeling, oh, buddy? I know long. I feel the struggle in your voice. It's an hour and a half it. talking about this bullshit chapter. It's so long. I'm sorry. I'm sorry we did that. It was people. a fucking long one, man. It was yeah. a fucking long one. He's also just a dense writer. Like, there's always a lot to unpack. Dense in every sense. I know. Of the word. Um, I mean, criticize the guy all you want, and we will. But the dude can pump out a lot of bullshit in a little bit of time. Yeah, he can put some words down on fucking paper. Yeah, it looks like such a little book, and then it's so like it, it really is dense and just it's like skinny paper. They got that breezing, extra skinny paper. Yeah, it's but it's just breezing over concepts that actually require a lot of unpacking and a lot of thoughts to sit to for us to sit here and unpack is quite a lot but unless unless you're willing to do that i this could be a very quick read in the sense that i could read this and be like well none of that made any sense but you know that's not what this show is about <laughs> this show is about actually unpacking the things that don't make sense so it, it is it is tough sometimes it is tough but yes and we hope that that's what we've done for the listeners giving you a little more and helping you unpack a lot of this stuff that's going on here and uh, that's it. That's it for this week's show. I feel like we've been we've been recording a while, and uh, oh, wow. <laughs> I've forgotten how we do the format. <laughs> but thank oh. you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you just can't get enough of us, remember you can go over to patreon.com forward slash nygbc, become a patron for a little two dollars an episode. Oh, and uh, I should I never say this, but I should say it. I guess uh, patrons don't get charged for four episodes a month. We still just charge for two episodes a month, which are the the new book episodes. At some point in the future, if we start doing, uh, you know, four brand new full episodes a month, we might change that. But for now, they just get charged for, for two a month. So if you're worried about that, that that's something to consider. Uh, for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, drawings to win our copies of the books we read, and more. As always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, Savi Aquino, Glaurung the Deceiver, Danielle, Terrified Will Be Pecked to Death by Lame Ducks. And only two, more, two months left, two months left for the Lame Ducks to peck us. Becky Scott Fairley, Stephen and Cindy Dimmock, A.J. Brantley, Taru Takanen, Skeptical Seventh, and Andrew Jenko. Thank you all so much for being our patrons. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, oh my stars and garters, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye.
The Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.